Good morning and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and my guest today is Dr. Cheryl Wilson, and we'll be speaking about the African presence in colonial and early New York. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Lawveld House, located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places and a newly designated New York State Path Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland with the public, and we rely on financial support for membership and donations from people just like you. Right now, we're in the midst of our annual appeal, and we hope you will make a tax-deductible contribution to help us preserve and share the history of Rockland County. Visit our website, rocklandhistory.org, and click the Donate button to make a safe and secure online gift. Before we begin, I'd like to remind our listeners that this is a call-in show, so please call us if you have a question or a comment. The number here is 845-362-0013. That number is 845 845- Three six two zero zero one three. Dr. Wilson is a professor at Rockland Community College and Manhattan College, and she began her career at the African Burial Site National Monument in New York City. I wonder, Dr. Wilson, if you would begin by telling our listeners a little bit about the African Burial Ground National Monument and how that came to be. Services Administration, or GSA, the federal government's landlord, as they like to refer to themselves, decided that they would build a new federal office building that would be adjacent underground to 26 Federal Plaza. And in building this new building, it was required by a 1966 Historic Preservation Act that archaeological exploration was made because historically this site was believed to have been an, a burial ground for Africans in particular in the 1700s, and that very much turned out to be the case in May of 1991, almost the first week out, and in terms of the excavation, human remains began to be uncovered, and that led to a, oh my goodness, almost a 10-year battle, 10 years plus between the General Services Administration and people who advocated for the burial site, who believed the burial site should have never been excavated because it was a burial site. But as it turned out, it was excavated in part. The burial site, we believe, to be approximately five and a half to six acres. And the portion where the new federal office building sits is at the northern corner between Broadway and what is now known as African Burial Ground Way. But it's basically the area between Broadway and Center Street. There are buildings on other portions of the burial grounds. Those buildings, we believe, include City Hall to the south. Approximately, well, exactly 419 remains were excavated before there was a federal hearing that declared that the burial ground should cease being excavated. And those 419 remains were reburied after being analyzed off and on for several years. They were reburied on that northern portion of the site, which is now the only New York national monument that commemorates the African presence and contributions to building and creating the New York City that's known today. What was the most surprising thing that was learned 
from the effort to preserve this burial ground? Well, there, there were a number of surprising things in terms of the findings themselves. In terms of preserving the burial ground, I guess one of the most surprising things was that there there are no written records of exactly who was buried in a burial ground. These were poor people who, and there, while there were a few headstones, they were the cheapest kind of headstones that you could buy during that period. So if there were etchings, writings, initials, names on those headstones, they have not lasted into the present era. So again, by name, we don't know, of, you know, we don't know specifically of any person by name. However, the public reaction, particularly among African Americans in New York and other places as well, was to adopt or to feel an absolute connection for those buried in the burial ground. Because one of the unfortunate legacies of African American slavery has been the breaking up of families, people being given new names at the whims of the owners. So this makes our African American genealogy, for example, very difficult because people were given names sort of arbitrarily and runaways certainly would change their name just in an escape to conceal themselves if they had run away. So the fact that we don't know anyone by name, but yet there are so many people who feel a connectedness and therefore advocate for the respectful treatment of those remains, that was one of the surprising things for me. And that continues into the present day. I'm sure. The preservation of this burial ground must have been an incredibly painstaking process. Can you describe that a little bit for our listeners? Well, again, the preservation efforts were essentially a battle between people who referred to themselves as an agent of the United States government, meaning the General Services Administration, and everyday people. And we're talking young children. We're talking high school students, college students, as well as the elderly who advocated, again, for the respectful treatment of those remains and the site itself as a spiritual site. I mean, while people are interested, certainly I am, and have been for years in the site as an education site, we should remember, you know, that this is where somebody's buried. And again, just because we don't know by name who they are, that doesn't diminish. And I think this is particularly true for African Americans because we can't trace our backgrounds necessarily in a way many people can who live in America. That whole feeling connected and feeling that this site must not be disrespected or, you know, treated badly because, quote, there's no genetic connection per se. Right, absolutely. So now the site is, as you said, a national park. Uh, it can well, be. It's a national monument, which is not in the same sense a park. Certainly, they give tours of the site, both you know, interior tours of the lobby of the building, which is a learning center, not a museum. But you can go there and see images from the the excavation. You can see the site map. I mean. Think of it this way, if you're watching the opening shot of Law and Order, the original Law and Order, and you see the federal courthouse building, if you were to imagine yourself to go back in time and walk to the bottom of those stairs, in the 1700s, you'd see a water source known as the Collect Pond, and on the other side, you would see the African burial ground. 
this is clearly a time when, you know, Manhattan wasn't about skyscrapers and tall buildings. And people tend to forget that New York City starts out as other places in colonial area, as a rural area. And the burial ground was dictated to be outside the city limits, along with the first Catholic cemetery as well as the first Jewish cemetery for that period. When the King of England gave what is today Trinity Church to the British settlers in New York, this became the Church of New York. And while site had been previously the pauper's burial ground for the city of New York, now it became official land of the Church of England in New York. And the church declared that Africans who were not members of their church, and some Africans were, along with Jews and Catholics, must be buried outside the city limits, which then would have been basically where the burial ground sits today at Broadway and starting at Chamber Street and going north to, to at least Reed Street. And it really is difficult when you go down to that area of lower Manhattan to imagine that as rural. I mean, it's it takes a lot of of shutting your eyes and really imagining what it was like to see what is now completely urban and almost devoid of anything green. To to think of that as a rural area, absolutely. So, are there park rangers there that are giving tours of the site? You can do your own tour, but there are rangers there who provide access to the site and answer questions regarding the excavation and the history of the site as well. Most recently, during the week of Kwanzaa, they just opened the archive for the for the burial ground, which was something that I, in the past, I helped to create because I was also the founding director of the Office of Public Education and Interpretation for the General Services Administration. And we basically had a very simple task that we gave ourselves, and that was to collect every written piece of information, any artifact, anything we could, that had to do with the African presence beginning with the Dutch in the 1600s and coming forward beyond the burial ground. Well, that's fascinating. And how long did you work on that? Twelve and a half years. And ironically, it started out, as I was told, as a six-month to one-year position. But the interest in the burial ground simply grew over time. You know, again, at one point we helped to execute a plan to have an African burial ground stamp created by the post office, the commemorative section. It never happened. However, we collected more than 160,000 signatures worldwide from children. And, for example, we had over 100 signatures from children in China who were writing their names in English for the first time because we had more than 350 volunteers. And that particular volunteer was a young man in the Peace Corps who was teaching, helping to teach these children English. And they wrote their names in English for the first time on the petition. People in prison sent us hundreds of signatures. We had signatures from all 50 states as well as 35 countries abroad. So while the stamp was never recognized, at least not in, not to date, awareness of the burial ground grew as a result of the commemorative stamp campaign. That's 
That's amazing. So you're listening to WRCR.com and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan, and I'm speaking with my guest, Dr. Cheryl Wilson, urban anthropologist and ethno-historian, and we're speaking about the African presence in New York. So many people believe that enslaved peoples were found only in the South, but this really isn't the case, is it? Well, that's one of the important findings, if you will, that came out of the, the rediscovery and excavation of the cemetery. Most people have no awareness, for example, that in all 13 of the original colonies, that slavery is a part of its history. Therefore, absolutely, there was slavery in New York, and, and again, all of the northern colonies. There's no exception to that. Certainly places like Massachusetts, which was the first colony to end slavery, had smaller numbers than New York City. New York City was essentially the epicenter of slavery in the North, along with that small, the smallest, now state, Rhode Island, where ships were built that actually went to Africa, collected people for sale, and sold them throughout North America. But New York was number two in the slavery business during the 1700s. Second only, and this is New York City quite specifically, second only to Charleston, South Carolina in the South. But, you know, Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black History Month and, you know, noted scholar, points out that we are miseducated. And he had a broader book called The Miseducation of the Negro. But I have to believe that if that you cannot miseducate one portion of the population without miseducating everyone. Mm. So for any of us that thought that, you know, slavery was only in the, in the South, again, we've been miseducated. The burial ground was for a time a project at Columbia University's School of Journalism, and I was interviewed several times by them, and they would say, what kinds of questions should we ask the public, you know, in terms of just getting a gauge for how people understand this history? So I suggested that they simply stand out on Broadway and uh, Leonard Street and interview people who walk by and, and ask the important question, when did slavery end in New York? Well, not to my surprise, at least, most people had no idea that slavery ever existed in New York. So, you know, that's, that's problematic, I'd say, for historians. You know, you meet people all the time who consider themselves to be well-educated about New York and to find that they had no awareness of this history. So the, the rediscovery and the excavation of the burial ground has certainly taken a step in correcting this miseducation, but I think a lot more needs to be done. Well, we know that there were enslaved people here in Rockland County, and we know that from the census records and deeds and and uh, wills and so forth. An yes. example would be uh, the recent acquisition of the Onderdonk Tallman Sandstone House in Clarkstown. There is evidence in those records that there were uh, enslaved people there. And as the town begins their plans to interpret this site as a teaching uh, resource for the schools, uh, the school children in Clarkstown and beyond all of Rockland, what, in your opinion, is a good way to incorporate this into a curriculum that could be used at this site? Well, that's a very interesting question. I'd have to say that one of the problems I initially ran into with the General Services Administration, and this, you know, is not particularly a criticism of them. This was simply the way they did business, if you will. 
they wanted to focus on the burial ground with no real context, which, you know, I totally disagree with. And I they think that, like, you know, this is like trying to talk about the pyramids without even, even acknowledging that they were built in Egypt and, and all that surrounding history that led to the construction of these. So I think that for any site, it's not enough to talk about the past, well, to talk about the particular site out of context. That, you know, Clarkstown or anybody else talking about that history needs to start at the beginning, so to speak. And ironically, and some people consider it ironic, I, I don't, that beginning starts with a native presence that needs to be incorporated. Mm -hmm. And you begin there and, again, do the same thing in terms of collecting as much information about the past as you can. There's certainly technology and scientific development that we have today that people in the past absolutely did not have. Uh, you know, just looking at the new book in Defiance that, you know, talks about all of the advertisement for people running away, for people for sale, for property, meaning land, that, and businesses that include human beings as a part of that resource. There are, you know, again, there, there's a lot of documented information here that needs to be thoroughly studied. At the burial ground, our goal was to find out not just how the dead were buried and things like that. But we needed to know how they lived mm. as well. Because, you know, figuring out somebody, how someone died is not as easy as it sounds, particularly if they weren't shot by a bullet or, you know, something very obvious. That takes a lot more scientific sort of diagnosis and analysis in order to determine that kind of thing. For example, one of the surprising things, to go back to the the findings from the burial ground, for me, was that 45% of the remains were of children under the age of 12. And that implies, and this was the, the, pretty much the same for children of, of the European population in New York, but children die from what we would consider to be common treatable or certainly preventable diseases, childhood diseases, measles, mumps, chickenpox. Things, they died from things like that, along with, no doubt, some complication from poor diets and things like that. But children died from those kinds of illnesses. And it also documents the idea that we, we know, for example, that even in the early 1900s, that children are an important part of, of the labor of New York. New York City, you know, if you were a kid, say, in Rockland, and you grew up on a farm, certainly... You had tasks and you had chores that you had to complete just as, you know, part of the household or as children often were, whether you were sent out to become an apprentice someplace because you came from a large family that basically had seven kids and couldn't really afford to have eight or whatever the number was. So for me, that, that role that children played, and obviously, you know, in terms of death to their own detriment, uh, also well documented because, again, this is something we only associate with children enslaved in the South, but you know, the results were pretty much the same thing in the North. Mm -hmm. So recently I read that a school in Connecticut removed some of its learning materials from their curriculum because they did not accurately reflect 
the lives of enslaved peoples in, in Connecticut. Are you familiar with the materials used in the New York curriculum? And if so, what are your thoughts about what's being used in New York to tell the, the real story of enslaved peoples of New York? Well, again, you know, the burial ground opened many people's eyes. What bothered me at the time, and, you know, when we talk about the Board of Education of the City of New York, obviously we're talking about a huge bureaucracy that has all kinds of conflicting rules within its own organization. When I started giving walking tours in, oh, I want to say, uh, mid-1980s of Lower Manhattan, and quite often I had school groups that included teachers who were history teachers, and they would say, oh, this information is amazing. We've never heard of it. So again, that's a problem in and of itself. And then teachers were, at that time, I don't know what the situation is today, they had an option as to whether or not to include the African presence when they talk about the history of, you know, of New York. Certainly uh, when people teach and talk about colonial New York and its founders and, and those guys, so to speak, that's not optional. And very often it's dictated that you must say something, not enough in my opinion again, about the native people, but to say that Africans who were crucial to the creation of New York, that you have an option as to whether or not to include their history. For example, during the Dutch occupation, this is up to 1664, African men were brought here in 1658 to expand Broadway. And this expansion basically was only up to about 34th Street when they started. Broadway was expanded through Manhattan and through Westchester County, making it one of the longest streets in the region. Now, this is, you know, this is documented in the Dutch records. And yet, like slavery itself in early New York, most people are completely unaware of it. So, I, you know, I know that, again, Columbia University, as well as the New York Historical Society, created programs to help prepare teachers to pass on this information to their students. But whether or not this is mandated, it still is a question. And, again, I, in, in what I did, we helped to educate, send out information packages, for example, to all of the historically black colleges in the United States, and most other New York State colleges, state and city colleges, some private colleges. So we know that the information, you know, has been disseminated over time. I mean, our office was a part of the World Trade Center complex, and much of our paperwork and information was destroyed. And interestingly enough, I had people sending me back copies of material from various institutions throughout the state and the country that they thought perhaps we maybe didn't have original copies of. So that information is out in the world. But And I give a lot of talks, and every time I give a talk, I get pretty much the same question that says, why don't we know more about this? Why isn't it blanketly taught in school? I think we forget that education is as much political. As, you know, it, it has more to do, I think, with politics and, say, the labor market itself. When we, you know, think of the past in education, it has been about preparing children for some job in the future. 
And while that's still true to some extent today, in New York, it certainly would be my observation that what has been taught in terms of education has been very much about politics and not so much specifically about labor markets. For example, I met a, a woman who had taught social studies from New York State for more than 25 years at that time. She came on a tour with me and, you know, was sort of surprised by some things and not by others. And maybe five years after I met her, she contacts me to say she had material that was given to her during the 1960s when she and 50 other New York State-wide teachers were supposed to go to Albany on this learning retreat to incorporate the African presence in the, to the curriculum. So they were sent these, you know, a lot of reading material to do in advance. And at the very last minute, the plan was canceled. And she, along with these other people, wound up with this material, and she wanted to know if I wanted to see it. And I, oh my goodness, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited about getting it. But a lot of this information that I know today, and this, this was scholarly information. This was not simply somebody's opinion of what happened. This was based on historical records and other documents. And I, you know, was able to incorporate this in, in my tour business as well as in my role as the public educator director for the African Burial Ground. So, again, that information is out there, but it's not enough because I still meet people all the time who look at me and say, the African Burial Ground, what's that? Well, I could talk to you all day, Dr. Wilson. It's been phenomenal, but we are out of time, and I thank you so much for being here. It's been enlightening to me, and I know our listeners have learned a lot from this. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Please remember that everything we talked about, as well as a recording of this broadcast, will be available on our website, rocklandhistory.org, and we hope you will tune in to the next episode of Crossroads of Rockland History in February. That's the third Monday in February, when my guest will be Richard Donegan, who will talk about the fifth annual Rockland County High School Local History Conference, and I hope you will tune in for that. On behalf of everyone at the Historical Society of Rockland County, I hope you will join me in remembering Dr. Martin Luther King today. Many of you are enjoying a day off, so we hope you will reflect on the great work Dr. King did for all of us and join us as we aim to continue his good work. Visit the Historical Society online at rocklandhistory.org. Follow us on Facebook, where we have a growing group of friends and fans. Follow us on Twitter or Tumblr, and come visit us in New City. Our exhibition, Let It Snow, Rockland in Wintertime, will be open through the end of February. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR.com.